I'm going to start with the words of a song that I was going to play, but I decided not to. But I want to, it's a Rich Mullins song. And some of you, if I would have played it, you might have remembered it. It was sometimes referred to as the cup song, where they did this thing with the cups to the beat of the music. But I, I like the song because it's so appropriate for what we're going to talk about today. And I think the title is something like, It's as useless as a screen door in a submarine. It goes like this. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Faith without works, baby. It just ain't happening. One is your left hand, one is your right. It'll take two strong arms to hold on tight. Some folks cut off their nose just to spite their face. I think you need some works to show for your alleged faith. Well, there's a difference, you know, between having faith and playing make-believe. One will make you grow, the other one just makes you sleep. Talk about it, but I really think you ought to take a leap leap off the ship before you claim to walk on water. Faith without works is like a song that you cannot sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Faith comes from God in every word that he breathes. He lets you take it to heart so you can give it hands and feet. It's got to be active if it's going to be alive you got to put it into practice. Otherwise, it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Faith without works, baby, it just ain't happening. One is your right hand, one is your left. It's your light, your guide, your life, and your breath. Faith without works is like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we look into your word this morning that you would, uh, by your spirit, give us discernment, speak to our hearts, give us understanding, give us knowledge, give us wisdom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the book of James, and I was thinking how appropriate it was and how confusing it could be for the message I'm going to share today in light of what we've been talking about in adult Bible school or Bible class the last few weeks. The writings of Paul to the Philippians and to the Corinthians and Ephesians and whoever you jump around to. And then all of a sudden we've got James, who seems to be almost contradicting Paul in so much of his teaching. I'm going to just do a quick, quick review of the last few weeks. We started out in James, Consider it all joy, my brothers when tests and trials all come your way. Why? Because it will build patience. It builds maturity. We need to remember the theme of the book of James to help us to mature as Christians and to live more holy lives. And that's his theme throughout. And then it says, if you lack wisdom, if you lack understanding, pray and ask God. He'll give you wisdom. Lord, what's going on? Pray for wisdom. We need wisdom. We discover that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin because He's a good God. He's holy God. He will not tempt us. Temptation comes from one of two places. My flesh, your flesh, or the enemy, Satan. But never, ever from God. Then we talked about this reproductive cycle of sin. Lust conceives and it gives birth to sin, which matures into death. Quite a process that we want to 
stop if it's going on in our lives somewhere and prevent from ever taking root in our lives. And one of the best ways to do that is to understand the process of sin. We talked about sin starts as a desire. There's a deception. We see the bait. Then there's disobedience. And ultimately, it'll lead to death if it's not dealt with quickly. And the best way to make sure it's dealt with quickly is to receive, and James said, receive the implanted Word of God. Get the Word of God in us. Get the Word of God in us. The solutions to life's issues are in the Word of God. The Word of God builds faith, produces hope. The Word of God. The enemy wants to keep you and me out of God's Word. No matter what. He doesn't want you reading this Word. He knows that the Word will create a faith that he will not be be able to overcome with any of his lies, with any of his deceptions. And then we were warned by James... To be doers of the word, not merely hearers. And actually, he said it this way, whatever you do, don't delude yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't kid yourselves. Be doers of the word, not just hearers. And then he goes on and he switches kind of to how we should live this Christian life. And he, and he talks about favoritism. He actually says, don't let your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ be manifested with an attitude of showing favorites discriminating. Then he talked about the royal law, the law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality that, that love trumps, triumphs over prejudice. And then he finished that section of Scripture talking about mercy. Mercy versus judgment. How mercy trumps judgment. We're to love like Christ loves and we're to show mercy to others. He talks about a relationship with God, but he's also talking and making a big emphasis. It should cause a relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ that's different from the world. The title of my message, if you've seen it on the screen yet or not, I don't know, but the title says, Faith That Saves and Transforms. If you look at that title, I think you can make the assumption that we're going to be looking at a particular kind of faith. A faith that saves us and transforms us. And the text is going to be in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. And I'm going to read it. And as I read it, if you, especially if you were in a, an adult Bible class, um, you can understand that this section of Scripture was probably the most troubling section of Scripture to, the, to, to Martin Luther. How many, how many of you have ever heard of Martin Luther? Yeah, we should. We're in Lutheran, Minnesota, aren't we? So we're going to look at this. And, and Martin, Luther, Martin Luther had a simple solution to this problem that looks like a par, uh, an apparent conflict in the message. You know what his solution was? Let's take the book of James and throw it out of the Bible. There had to be a better solution to that. And I think we'll see, I hope that we'll see there is a better solution. Starting in James verse 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brothers? Remember, that's the warning sign. He's about getting ready to tell you something that you might not like. My brothers, whom I've loved so much, get ready, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> if someone says he has faith, but he has no works. He says, so what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. A paraphrase would be, I'll pray for you. And yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may say, well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. In other words, you believe there's one God? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as a body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works dead. Wow. This is one of those sections of Scripture you just like to skip over so you don't have to try to explain it. Faith without works is dead. We're going to look at this, but we're going to start in Ephesians so we get this clear first. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, this is the Apostle Paul teaching. And sometimes, lots of people look and say, Paul's over here, and James is over here. What are they talking about? They, they, don't, they don't fit together. The reality is, they fit together perfectly. You just need to understand where they're coming from. For example, Paul, he's going out there and teaching. And one of the things that he kept running into was legalism. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to add this. You better get circumcised. You better, you better follow the rules, follow the laws, follow the ceremonial stuff. He was facing legalism. And Paul confronts that legalism with what we're going to read in Ephesians. On the flip side, there's another, another thing called antimonianism. I know you really care about that. But basically, antimonianism is the belief that Praise God, I'm saved by grace. I can do anything I want to do. Period. James is addressing antimonianism. So they're addressing two different things. And when we look at this, I think we'll see they're in agreement. But first, we want to nail this down. And I know if you're in an adult Bible class, you've been hearing this. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So how are we saved? By faith. Period. Or exclamation point. We are saved by faith, by God's grace through faith. What role do good works play in their salvation? None. They don't play a role at all. They don't save you in the least. 
So what is the relationship? Or how do good works fit in the life of a Christian? Well, let's go back and look. Go back, if you would, if you have already went ahead. Go back to that Ephesian Scripture. Put it back up there. Notice verse 10. It says this, For we are His workmanship, then what's it say? Created in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be created in Christ Jesus? What would be another way of saying that? Saved. We are the workmanship of God. We're His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Saved through Christ Jesus. And then notice what it says. For good works. Now that might be startling to some of us. I thought we were saved just so we could go to heaven. So we could avoid hell. That's a great perk. But notice what the scripture says. We are saved for good works. And what about those good works? That were prepared by God beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have been saved. This is Paul's writing now, not James. He's saying you're saved by grace through faith. And guess what? You were saved this way so no one could brag about it. But you are His workmanship and you were saved through what Christ Jesus did and you were saved so that you would do the good works that have been preordained by God from beginning of time for us to carry out. All of a sudden he sounds a little bit more like James. So what good are they? Nothing. We are created saved to do good works. Good works should be the natural byproduct of our salvation. And James is saying, you know what? If you don't have good works, it doesn't look good for you. It doesn't look good. As I said, Martin Luther was so troubled by this apparent contradiction between Paul, saved by faith, and then what James is writing here about works. Faith without works is dead. You know, you're justified by your works. And there's such a contrast and a conflict or apparent conflict that it should cause us to say, okay, what in the world is being talked about here? It should stimulate in us, we need to discover what the truth is when we look at this. And I think this confusion can be pretty easily avoided when we look at the thesis that James is clearly stating. He is telling us, he is speaking of an individual. Notice up there he introduced this person named someone in the Scripture. If someone says, and someone says this, he's showing us that there, this individual who claims to have faith, but has faith that has produced no change in life. So he is not comparing faith and works. He's comparing faith, intellectual knowledge, versus faith that really saves. A kind of faith. If you look back to James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if you have, if someone says he has faith but no works? And then it says, Can that faith save you? That specific kind of faith. I think one of the problems with Martin Luther might have been back in the day when we had King James. And that was the only Bible we had. Now, Arnie's not here, so I feel safe. Is Arnie here hiding somewhere? Okay, good. The King James does not have the word that in there. 
Every other translation does, and the, the Greek manuscripts do. There's a, there's a, the, in the Greek, there is a preposition there, and that means that or such. And look how different that reads. Can faith save you? Or can that faith save you? Can such a faith save you? So what's being compared here are two different kinds of faith. One that saves and brings about a changed life versus one over here that some people share with the demons. I don't think I want that one. I'd prefer this one. And this is what James is talking about. What use is it if I say I have faith and I have no works? James is asking a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. Does you no good whatsoever? Can such faith save you? Another rhetorical question. What's his answer? No. It can't save you. So what kind of faith is he talking about? He's talking about a kind of faith, as I said, that doesn't result in salvation and a changed life. And this kind of faith stands in complete contrast to the kind of faith that the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers and Jesus himself was talking about. A kind of faith that changes me. It saves me and transforms me into this new creation who cannot help but to do good works. Salvation and transformation. So keep in mind, James is not comparing faith and works. He's comparing two kinds of faith. You can call it a superficial faith if you want to. I've called it an intellectual faith. You can call it what you want to, but it's in contrast to the real deal, the biblical saving faith that Paul and other New Testament writers talk about and Jesus himself talked about. And this kind of faith isn't some hypothetical. It's a real faith that intellectual knowledge. And he makes this point to us that it is a real faith because he says, yeah, it's the kind of faith that the demons have. Now, I don't think any of us want to be compared to a demon. In verse 19, this faith is like the demons. They believe that there's one God and they shudder. You know, sometimes... Their faith is almost better than a Christian who has this intellectual faith because at least the demons respond a little bit. They shudder in fear. You know, if you, you look up that word for shudder in the Greek, it's to bristle, to stiffen, to stand up, to be scared, to shudder, struck with extreme fear, absolutely horrified. That's what kind of faith the demons have. That's the fruit of their faith. They don't bow down to Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. They don't obey God. They're living a deception even though they know that there is one true God. This kind of faith, believe it or not, is seen in all kinds of people. Lots of people have this kind of faith. Despite their claims that they believe in God, they are totally unresponsive to God's word unresponsive to God, and they're unresponsive to God's children. James is really talking about Christian living, remember, Christian maturity, how, should, how we should interact with other brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be a change. 
It should happen. What kind of faith do we have? When we say we believe in God, what do you mean? Do you say you believe in God like the demons believe in God and exist? There is one that exists somewhere? Or when I say I believe in God, do I use the word believe the same way that Paul and the other writers use it? I believe and therefore I am going to change. I'm going to act differently. I'm going to love God. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to believe in Him and I'm going to try to do to the best of my ability led by the Holy Spirit to do what He wants me to do. That's the believe that saves. It goes beyond mental assent. There's an interesting little story that I came across by a philosopher and I really don't usually think much of what philosophers have to say but I thought this made a great point. This philosopher's name was Soren Kierkegaard and he used the story of a make-believe land where only ducks lived. And one Sunday morning all the ducks in the community in the surrounding area got ready to go to duck church. They got dressed in their Sunday finest duck wear and they waddled down the road, waddled up the drive to the church, they waddled into the church, waddled to their pew and sat down and squatted in their pew. And then the duck pastor took his place behind the duck podium and he opened the duck Bible and he started reading. And he says, ducks! You have wings, and with wings you can fly, and you can soar with the eagles. With wings you can soar amongst the clouds. With wings you can separate yourself from the earth, the ground that we have to waddle on. And the ducks, you can imagine, they're going, Amen! Amen! Preach it, brother duck! Amen! And he closed the service with a duck prayer, and the ducks got up, and they waddled out of the church, and they waddled down the driveway, and they waddled down the home, and waddled to their homes. Isn't that sickening to think of that and with that picture? Amen, it's truth. You can live free. Amen. You can go to heaven. Hallelujah. You don't have to have guilt, shame, condemnation anymore. Praise the Lord. Preach it, brother. And we walk out of church totally not changed. Meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll pray for you. Go ahead and freeze your tail off. I I like my coat. You can't have it. I'm hungry. This is my piece of pizza I can't share. Praise God. The faith of a duck or the faith of a demon. And I read that and I think how often I I hear sermons or I I read somebody's books or I listen to something on television and inside him I'm going, amen, that's good. Amen, amen. And then I walk away and nothing changes. We don't want to be like that. It needs to go beyond intellectual assent. What happens when we're in that place, we hear the truth at a superficial level. It's a truth that I agree with. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. But it's at this superficial level where we don't act upon it. And we all have that faith that we act upon and you manifest it daily many, 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 many times. I mean, how many of you when you went out this morning turned the key on your car? Why'd you do that? Because you believed it'd start. 
When you got to the church, how many of you stopped outside and looked at the buildings? Jeez, I wonder if it's going to collapse today. Or did you have faith that they built it well and you walked right in? How many of you checked out the legs on your chair this morning before you sat down so you didn't end up on a pile on the floor? You had faith at work. You turn on the light switch. You have faith it's going to come on. We read the Word of God and we, I don't know if that will work for me. It might work for you, but it can't work for me. We switch from a proactive faith that we act upon, we believe in, to one that's like, well, yeah, I know it says that in here, but I'm not so sure. We don't change. We don't change. James, James is contrasting this dead faith with real faith. Verse 17, he had said, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Verse 20, he said, faith without works is useless. He's pointing out a particular kind of faith that's useless compared to the real, vital faith in God that brings about not only our salvation, but a transformation, a change in us. You know, we, we, we hear this and say this, and I think most of us would go, amen. The Holy Spirit is to transform us into the image of Christ in a greater and greater way, day after day after day. Down the road, somewhere on the calendar, I should be more like Christ when I get to that day because the Holy Spirit's working in me, and we'd all go, yeah, amen. Is He? Are we believing Him? Are we cooperating with Him? And then he uses two real-life examples, Abraham and Rahab. And this is where, if you just read it, it's again a little perplexing. Faith, salvation, we are saved by grace through faith, not works. And then I, and I read in here and it says, Abraham was justified by what? Works. So was Rahab by works. What in the world is going on? Why is there such a difference? In verse 23, in regard to Abraham, it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed God, reckoned as righteousness. True for all of us. We're saved by grace through faith. And then we read in verses 24, 25. And I'm going to go back and reread them. It says this. You see that a man is justified by works, not faith alone. Can you see why Martin Luther was standing up and screaming? And then he goes on and says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Okay. Well, either Paul's wrong or James is wrong. Or we're missing something. And I want to offer to you this morning, we're missing something. So that you could go to adult Bible class and hear what Bob is preaching from the Paul's writings, and you could go home and read James and study it and go, I give up. There's a conflict here. There is not a conflict here. We need to look at the word justified. And if you think about it, there are words in our English that have different meanings when they're used differently in a sentence, right? It's not that uncommon. In the Greek, I'm going to put up, put up the Greek word, and there's the three definitions, the three most common definitions, or the three most common ways that that Greek word, dekayo, is translated 
and it has its meaning. The first one, the second one, third one. The first and primary meaning is to make or render righteous as such as you ought to be. That is the primary meaning that we see in almost all of Paul's writing. We have been declared righteous. We have been justified by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We are righteous. The righteousness of Christ has been given to me. Praise God. That's what the primary meaning of justified is. But it has a secondary meaning. And this is the meaning that the way the sentence is structured, that James is using it. Notice what it says. To show, to exhibit, to evince one to be righteous, such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. He is justified. He is shown to be. He is shown to be. It's demonstrated that he is. Here's the evidence. There's the proof. So James isn't contradicting Paul at all. Paul is addressing what it takes to be saved. How do we get saved? How are we justified? He's the how are. James' teaching is about, now that you are, here's what it should look like. Boy, all of a sudden it gets easier to understand. He's not saying you got to do works to get saved. You know, as Bob was saying this morning, uh uh-uh, it had nothing to do with works. You can't get saved by your works. It's impossible. And James is saying, Amen, Brother Paul, you preach it and teach it because you're right on. And here is the evidence that you are justified. Good works. Because as Paul wrote, after he said, you are saved by grace through faith that no one may boast, you are saved so that you would do good works that are preordained by God Himself. So it fits together nicely. Paul is saying, You have to be justified by faith. By grace of God. You are declared righteous. You are justified, declared righteous. James is saying, your works show, prove, advance, justify that you really are saved. See the difference? And it makes it so much clearer when we understand that he is not trying to contradict in any way, shape, or form. When it comes to Abraham, the Bible says he believed. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed. And then he did. He obeyed. His works justified or completed or showed us, proved to us that he was really saved. When we get saved, truly saved, good works should be a natural growth, fruit. That's one of the reasons the Bible says you may know them by their fruit. Know who? Those that are truly saved which also means you might have a good clue as to who's really not. And I want to say this just to keep us cautious. God's still the only one that can judge a person's heart. I can look at all the fruit in the world or I can see no fruit, but I better not make that final judgment. That's God's job. No one else's. But if we're truly saved, man, we want to see fruit. We want to bear fruit. We want to produce fruit. Why? What's the purpose of all those good works? Why does, why does it say, you know what? God saved you and he created you to do these good works. Why? If it doesn't do him any good to get saved, what's the purpose? Well, there's that little caveat that my reward's in heaven. I like that. But that's not the real reason. Why? 
Good works. The purpose of good works. Here it is. Simple. Bring glory and honor to God. That's it. That's why he created you. That's why he saved you. To bring glory and honor to God. So the good works. Do your good works bring glory and honor to God? Do your works in general bring glory and honor to God? You want to question something in your life. Does it bring glory and honor to God? If it's debatable, I might not want to go there. Because it should bring glory and honor to God. When I am doing something and you are watching me and you are observing me and you are looking at the fruit I'm producing, what do you see? If you don't see something that brings glory and honor to God, those works are going to just burn. And I need to be confronted with love by any and all of you. Because our fruit should be good fruit. The truth of the matter is I see it, and as I best understand it, that the moment we get saved, God declares you and me righteous. We have been acquitted of all sin. Okay? It's a done deal. But he does more than that. He does more than that. He doesn't just save me. He starts to transform me from the inside out. So the salvation, true faith, doesn't just save me. It begins to transform me. And that's why the writers could say, so look at their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. The salvation that God offers us. He doesn't just say, I'll save you. He says, I'll save you and transform you into the image of my son. Wow, that is amazing. Because the Mike I know doesn't look anything like Jesus. But he's telling me that there's something he's deposited deposited in me. We know it's the Holy Spirit to transform me, to do good works that will bring glory and honor to him. So Paul and James are agreeing completely on how we get saved. But Paul is just emphasizing the how, and James is emphasizing the transformation that will show up in your lifestyle as a believer. Believers should look different from the world. Amen? Amen. Don't be like the ducks. Amen, and yeah, I'm going to look different. Amen. We need to be different. And Paul, or James finishes this section of Scripture with a really clear picture. In verse 26, he just simply says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, if there were a dead body up here, And I said, praise God, I'm glad you're all here. I just raised that dead body to life. Amen. I raised that body to life. And you come up and you look at this thing and there's no pulse, there's no breathing, and there's no movement. All my words are not going to change your mind because the evidence is crystal clear, right? That's what it is like faith. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the works that they accomplished. Well, that all sounds good. Let's see some evidence. And this is what James is saying. 
And I don't want you to think I'm sitting here condemning anybody out there. I, I don't know where you're at. I think I know where most of us are at. I hope I'm preaching to a bunch of believers that are real believers. But the, the slim chance that there might be one here that's not, and somehow or other you are relying on something else for your salvation. You know, we all grew up in denominations where they added a lot of things to what it took to get saved. You know, Martin Luther, when he broke away from the religion that he was, he left because they had all these works. All these works, all these works. I can see why Martin Luther had a little trouble with James. His bias, he was looking at it through his old filter and thinking, I don't want anything to do with that. But most all of us grew up in churches where they started adding to it, adding to it. And in our natural mind, we do too. Because we've got to approve, we've got to do, we've got to do, we've got to do to get the approval of persons, of men, of, of other humans. And we just assume that if we've got to do that with here, we must have to do it with God. The answer is no. Won't do you a bit of good. So, closing, James is not comparing faith to works. He's comparing two different kinds of faith. Intellectual agreement that says they believe with no response manifesting in their, their works versus saving faith, a living, vital faith that transforms a believer more and more into the image of Christ. And we see that transformation being manifested by works. And as I said, the purpose of those good works are to bring glory and honor to God. There was a time in the Bible, and it's in the Gospel of John chapter 6, where Jesus is talking to a whole bunch of people. And they're wrestling a little bit with this whole kind of thinking. And you've got to remember, a lot of the people Jesus was talking to, they were most familiar with the Jewish religion. He primarily was speaking to Jews in most of his audiences. And they were so used to all the rules, all the regulations, the old ceremonial law. They were so used to all that. And he's talking and they're getting confused. And finally, finally somebody says to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? I mean, he's telling them you don't have to do this. You don't have to kill any sheep. You don't have to go to the, you know, you don't have to do that stuff. Lord, what do we do? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That's it. Believe in Jesus and what he did. Believe in such a way that it's real, it's life-changing, it transforms us. We are saved by grace through faith. And then we are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit and us cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And then he receives all the glory and honor in our lives. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I just rejoice in the truth that you saved us by grace through faith. There was nothing we could do. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for drawing us by your Holy Spirit, giving us the grace to receive, to believe by faith. I thank you, Lord, that you've deposited in each one of us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and transform, to teach, to bring us more and more and more into that Christ-likeness, that we can become better and better ambassadors for Jesus, that the works that we work out of our salvation will bring glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray that no one here would have an intellectual assent type of faith, but it would be the real thing. And Lord, I 
pray also that the enemy could not use anything that I have shared this morning to bring doubt or confusion. Rebuke that spirit in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would go about loving you and loving others, that we would truly submit to that royal law of love, that we see brothers and sisters in need, we act instead of just talk. Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways, even this week, we would see opportunities to do just that, to put hands and feet to the gospel that you've put in our heart. Lord, I pray that as we go also, you would watch over us, protect us, give us discernment to see the snares of the devil. God, protect us in the natural. God, I pray for safety and safe travel on these roads. Watch over each one. And Lord, we pray that as we go about all of the things that you have for us to do, we would always remain in that spirit of humility, being sure to give you all the praise, all the glory, and the honor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.